Um, she is played by Cyan Brooke. Why did I say it like that? <laughs> you had an Irish accent for some reason. Why? <laughs> she was played by Cyan Brooke. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to It's Not TV, it's a podcast. I'm Nicole and along with me is David. Hello, hello. For season three, we have a very special format. In order to quench the overwhelming regret for not having a podcast that covered Game of Thrones, we are covering each episode of House of the Dragon on the pod as they air. Spoiler warning, please understand we will be talking about it all, all the things for the episode that we are covering, as well as any that have aired previously. We will also cover the Game of Thrones season, the Song of Ice and Fire books, all that jazz. Consider yourself warned. That said, we will not be spoiling the ending of House of the Dragon. If you want the ending right now, go read George R.R. Martin's Fire and Blood. Oh, sure. We're going to be talking about House of the Dragon which is the prequel to Game of Thrones. Let's give a little bit of our experience for the newbies with Game of Thrones, House of the Dragons, the books, the shows. What's your history with this franchise? So I read three of the books and I've watched every episode of Game of Thrones. Also very interested in the lore. And I am one of the few who wasn't completely angry at the end. Oh, just... Definitely nitpicky. Yes. Definitely had disappointing points, but I wasn't completely angry. What about you? So I watched the series. Uh, You and I talked about the series a lot. I have read all the books. I have even read the Duncan Egg uh, novellas, which are fantastic. And I recently completed Fire and Blood in preparation for this podcast. I have no life, so I have a little bit more lore on this than you. And I did really hate the ending. I, I was very disappointed with the ending of Game of Thrones, and I thought that that wound would never heal. Yet here I am trying to be friends with benefits with House of the Dragon. You know, I didn't realize it has been three years since Game of Thrones ended. It feels like a lifetime ago. Yeah. Do you feel like positive or negative? Do you feel like enough time has passed for people to give a a sort of fresh take that they're, they're open to the series? I do think there's enough time for a fresh take, I, but I also think that the hooks were in when it came to this series, and I don't think that anyone wouldn't watch it, even if it was a car crash. Yeah. I, I don't look at Game of Thrones in the perspective that the ending ruined it for me. No way. I look at it as it was an ending I didn't like. It was a bad ending, but it didn't ruin those first seasons for me. I actually just completed a rewatch of the entire series. And yeah, season eight, not my fave. Did it hit softer? It did. Yeah. It did. I also felt like some of the parts were a little bit sillier. I feel like the fan service was was a lot. There's a lot of penis jokes, you know, a Tyrion. And, and just, I think we leaned in a little bit too much. The characters became more characterized. Um, it's like the, I think uh, they've heard of it as flanderization when the characters become more and more extreme. So I think there was a lot of that that I noticed more, but the effects still hold up. Some of the cool stuff is still fucking cool. I mean, ice zombies are great. And Ice Dragon Zombies are also great. So let's talk about how this show happened. So it's been three years. But before this show even shut down, they had started talking about what to do next. In 2016, HBO announced that Game of Thrones was coming into its final season. And HBO's chief content officer said, we're going to do spinoffs because it's a cash cow. And why not? That I'm paraphrasing him. So George R. R. Martin met with HBO and he pitched two separate ideas. The first was a Dunkin' Egg series, which may or may not still be happening at some point. So Dunkin' Egg is a series of novellas that followed Sir Duncan the Tall and Aegon Targaryen, who is hiding as his squire. And they go off on adventures. And it's fun. It's cute little books. And I would really recommend you read them. They're fun. If you don't want to read them, you should listen to them. Because Harry Lloyd, who plays uh, Viserys in the original Game of Thrones, he does the voices and he's fucking fantastic. He does Dunk, he does Aegon, he does local people, and a bunch of the small folk and other knights. So 
They pitched, George R. R. Martin pitched, this is one of the key stories. And we haven't heard much about it, but this may or may not still be happening. And he plans to still write more novellas for Duncan Egg. So it's definitely a story he wants to continue. Uh, for the Game of Thrones fans, uh, Dunk may or may not be a ancestor to Brienne of Tarth. There may be some link there. The other series that he pitched was Dance of the Dragons, which ultimately became House of the Dragons. So Dance of the Dragons follows the Targaryen Civil War that tears Westeros apart, and that is the show we are watching. The Dance of the Dragons is really important in the books, more so than Game of Thrones, the show. So a lot of that stuff maybe foreshadows uh, some of the things that are going to happen in Winds of Winter uh, in the books that are coming, but kind of tailed away uh, between the show and the books. And it has a uh, book that inspires it called Fire and Blood that is kind of just reads like a dictionary or an encyclopedia or a history book. And uh, yeah, so those are the two that sort of are in the works slash got made. We're going to talk a lot about Dance of the Dragons, which is going to be House of the Dragons. But there was a bunch that didn't make it, Nicole. So a bunch of nimwads came at HBO with their ideas to pitch them on making series. The first of which is The Doom of Valeria, which is from GOT lore and would cover the apocalyptic end to the Empire of Dragon Riders. The Targaryen home was Valeria, but they left for Westeros before the Doom kills literally all the other dragons. Womp womp. The second, Aegon's Conquest, yeah. which covers Aegon and his two sister wives taking their dragons to Westeros and literally killing and conquering the whole damn thing. <laughs> and then they make the Iron Throne. It's essentially the origin story of a Song of Ice and Fire. Then there was one about the Dornish princess Nymeera, who we'll talk more about later, because her lore was mentioned in the pilot episode. The aforementioned Dance of Dragons pitch, which became the new show. And lastly, a pitch about the Long Night, the original White Walker War from GOT lore. This one ended up going into production, and a very steep and expensive $30 million pilot was made, starring Naomi Watts. It was then canceled. Very recently, we have heard that a Jon Snow sequel series is in development. So if you were in charge of the Jon Snow show, let's say they show up today. I'd just bring him back to the cave with Ingrid. Oh. And we just, like, 10 episodes just a, of the yeah, cave. Yeah, it's just a porn. Them banging in the cave. <laughs> Well, they can be saying cute things and swimming around, too. doesn't have to be sex all the time. Oh, they're allowed to be cute while they're boning in the cave. Yeah, I think that's yeah, fair. They're in love and they're warm. Good old Bridgerton in the cave. <laughs> so for this show, House of the Dragon, uh, Ryan Condal is the co-showrunner. And he was a big uh, Martin fan. And he apparently fan stalked him until he got a meeting with him and pitched him his idea. And he's a huge book fan. And so these two sort of decided to go together to pitch it. Uh, and I know when they did, they ended up reaching out to uh, Miguel uh, Sapochnik, who directed several important episodes of Game of Thrones, uh, Battle of the Bastards, Hard Home, the one where Cersei blows up the Sept, and even the Long Night episode, if you could see it on your TV in the darkness. I heard it was a good episode. So they filmed, they started filming April 2021. They haven't confirmed a second season yet, but Deadline said that HBO spent at least $100 million in advertising. And unless it's a giant steaming turd, we're going to see a second season of this thing. Interesting thing here is that the creators don't see this series being like 10 years long like Game of Thrones was. They see this particular storyline being like three or four seasons, and then they might jump to a different storyline. And they kind of talked about Aegon's Conquest as being one of those. So I don't know that we're going to be here for 10 years with the same cast and sort of run into the same problems that Game of Thrones did where everyone was tired of fucking filming in Iceland and just wanted to move on with their careers. And we kind of know where this one goes. So they should be able to wrap this one up in a couple years. So finally, you're seeing things through my eyes, David, where you know the characters and the ending, and then you figure out how they get there. Mr. No Spoilers. I still don't like spoilers. And we'll, we'll try not to give too many away here. But I don't, it's why I struggle with prequels. That being said, having, having read Fire and Blood, there's a lot of like, and then David went into the battle and he died. And you're like, well, there's a lot more. Not to mention it was written by a mushroom. It was written by a mushroom. Uh, so uh, what Nicole is alluding to is that the Fire and Blood book is told sort of uh, in person, in storyline, as a, as a fictional tale written by a maester. And so they use various sources throughout the book. And one of those is a dwarf jester named Mushroom. 
And so what we've read in the book may not be accurate. So whenever the show deviates from the book, we can easily say, well, Mushroom got it wrong or whatever other maester was doing, it got it wrong. Uh, so it's it's a, it's a good little way to, to for them to flesh out more, but also to change things if they'd like. It's their Marvel uh, multiverse. Yeah. Whenever something just doesn't make sense, ah, it's the multiverse. And in this it was, case, it was a different it was a different timeline. <laughs> yeah. If something doesn't make make sense, you're blaming on Mushroom. So let's get into the episode. It's titled The Heirs of the Dragon, and it starts with the Great Council decision. What decision did they make, David? Yeah. So Jaharis had too many babies. So King Jaharis was was popping them out left and right. Well, I guess the missus was. And uh, it became an issue because then as kids start to die, you start to do the math. And you're like, well, who's the oldest kid? Is it the son of the oldest son? Is it the daughter of the eldest son? So everyone had different opinions on who should rule once King Jaharis uh, passed away. Now, he was the longest king ever. Yes. And beloved. Beloved. Everyone loved him. It was years apiece. He was a good guy. But his eldest son passed away. And then his his uh, second eldest son passed away. It was a whole thing. So they they got together and they tried to decide uh, who should rule the kingdom. And Jaharis, in either benevolence or ignorance, said, just let all the people decide. So they went to Harrenhal, as we remember from Game of Thrones, the giant destroyed castle that was destroyed by fire. And they invited all the lords of the realm around and they all came in and they basically did a vote. And there was a whole bunch of people who came forward and said, I should rule. I have dragon's blood. And uh, in the books, at least, they point out that several of them did not and were summarily executed for lying. Um, a bunch of them were like, oh, remember that king you all loved? Yeah, he cheated and had sex with my mom and I'm the bastard king. And they were like, nope, killing you. So a lot of people stepped up and got murdered. And it... It really came down to uh, Rhaenys and uh, Viserys uh, as the two. And, and Rhaenys was really representing for her eldest son. And, and Viserys was the oldest second son's son. So again, the math doesn't quite work for anybody. And essentially, they were just like, who do they like the most? And all the lords uh, didn't really like that Rhaenys, uh, her son was too young. So Rhaenys would essentially be queen. Uh, at least queen regent for a while. And they said, we don't like the ladies running things here in Westeros. So they picked Viserys. And everyone likes Viserys. And Viserys is a relatively good guy. Uh, so that's the meeting. That's sort of a prologue in, in the show. Although it's not exactly like this in the books, because the show doesn't really talk about uh, Rainey's son being the real heir that they're trying to to navigate. I think it sets up very well for our show that it's men versus women. And there's sort of this precedence that when in doubt, choose a man. Uh, what did you think about that whole scene of, of Jaharis sort of letting the realm decide who's going to be king? So in the moment, what I thought was, I didn't know who the fuck anybody was. And I was very confused <laughs> and didn't have any care who was chosen. Just trying to get names down and understand dialogue. I think what that does, though, is, so then we jump forward a bit. But I think our next important thing here is that uh, Viserys' brother, Daemon Targaryen, played by Matt Smith, he becomes appointed to the head of the City Watch. And it seems like they, they kind of explained that they gave him that position because they didn't know what the hell else to do with him. Like he was bad at coin and he was bad at master of ships and whatever the hell else. They just didn't like him. And he's kind of an asshole. So they put him to head up the, the, the City Watch and he's the one that names him the Gold Cloaks. Which is interesting because they give him shit about never showing to council meetings, but they give him shit for not being away where they sent him to his wife. But they gave yeah. him shit and they gave him a role where he needs to command the city watch in a city of which <laughs> I just don't understand. They really just don't have a clear directive for him. I can understand why the guy is a little confused. Yeah, he's married to what he refers to as the bronze bitch from the Vale. And so, yeah, you're right, Nicole. They kind of give him shit about like, you should be out commanding the city watch. Also, you should be at home with your wife. It's essentially they just don't want him in the council. Yep. But then they bitch that he doesn't show up to council meetings. Correct. Uh, I think it's clear that with the exception of Corliss Valerian, who is our dread, white dreadlocked friend uh, who's in all the council meetings, with the exception of Corliss Valerian, I think everyone hates Damon. And when he gets assigned to city watch, they spend a ton of money. They become the gold cloaks. We'll remember from Game of Thrones that the Gold Cloaks were the City Watch. They were the ones that were paid off by Littlefinger to betray Ned towards the end of season one. So when Ned goes to confront Cersei uh, about her sons being uh, bastards, incest bastards, and Janice Slint, 
says that don't worry, you've got the the city watch with you, Lord Stark. Uh, as soon as shit goes down, they turn against him. They turn against him. So the gold cloaks though start off with a ton of money and gold cloaks, and then Damon uh, has a little fun one night, Nicole. That's one way to describe it. <laughs> Basically raided and ravaged the city. I mean, they alluded to the fact that there was a lot of crime, um, but the way that it was executed and the people were executed <laughs> was <laughs> not fair and not just regardless of um, the crimes. Um, it was it was kind of almost funny the way they shot it. There'd be like someone standing there pointing going, Murderer! And then they like yeah, all yeah. go after the one guy and then you see like a butt. And I think, did it fart? Did he fart? I think it might have farted. I don't know if the butt farted. I know they cut off his cock, cock and balls. So we get a close up of a butt and then they're like, raper. And then they like all run over there. It just felt very silly. And so, you know, violence and sexual violence and frankly, the overexposed sex in the series were never highlights highlight points to me and the more i dig into what i the allure of this world is to me it really truly is the politics and yeah i think one of the things i enjoyed in early seasons of game of thrones that i don't think happened in later seasons of game of thrones is consequence i don't mind violence in the in the show in the story if there seems to be a consequence hmm. uh, I'll, I'll give you an example when jamie in the like fourth or fifth episode stabbed ned in the leg Jamie fled King's Landing and there was a big talk about like, what should we do with him? He stabbed another Lord. That's just not something you do. Mm -hmm. In later seasons, Cersei blew up entire armies. She blew up an entire religion. And like the next day, everyone was like, well, I guess she's queen now. I don't know what to tell you. One of the things I, I'm excited to see and I hope we continue to see is that when Damon does the sort of night raid, the sort of, you know, police action uh, throughout King's Landing, he gets reprimanded immediately by the council. And although it's just a reprimand, he is the king's brother. So the fact that they're talking shit on him, I think, is still something. And then, uh, as we'll talk about in a few minutes, he he does something else that's sort of over the line. And I do feel like he gets punished for that. So I'm hoping this series has repercussions for people who choose violence. And in the first episode, there's some hints that that may be the case. And I'm hoping that continues. Well, it the violence continues with the tournament. So the jousting Ooh. tournament um, that seemed to have no rules. I loved this. Um, I, that was just so brutal. Uh, paired with uh, Emma's laboring, switching in with the mutilation of some of the different knights that were participating in the tournament was deeply disturbing. Yeah. <laughs> on many levels. Uh, the ultimate um, decision by a man about a woman's body, all too familiar. All too recent. To kill her to save the babe. I think there's even a point where he finds out that it's a boy, a, that he's had a son. You can kind of see on his face relief. And I wonder if he like was like, at least it was worth killing my wife because I got finally got the heir. Right. And then the babe passes. We move to a scene of funeral pyres where the the queen and her tiny babe are wrapped and ready to be burned in ceremony. So it was brutal and it was rough. And Viserys had to make a choice on, on whether or not his they perform essentially a C-section uh, on his wife. Now, I think one of the questions I have, Nicole, is obviously he made a, a tough decision and he made that decision, not her. Do you think that Viserys is making the right decision for the realm? Now, I, how he handles the decision, right? Like he doesn't tell his wife, Emma, that they're going to try to do a C-section and she's likely going to die. He's just like, shh, we got this. But because it looks like it pains him. It, it doesn't look like he enjoys this, right? But do you think he made the right decision for the realm at that moment? I believe that she should have decided whether or not to save the baby or to let it roll. It should have been her decision. At least tell her what he his intention, not just be like, they're going to get the babe out now and just like watch them just tear into her and grab a baby out of her body. And I believe what the maester said was, we can save one of them or we can let it play out. And then outlined what saving the baby would look like, I believe, because he knew the king's 
desire for an heir. Yeah. And she told him it was the last time that they were going to try. When you see Viserys, who up to this point seems like kind of a, a nice get along kind of guy. He kind of agrees with everyone in the council. He seems like a nice enough dude. Ruling in peaceful times. Yeah, he, he's he's throwing a tournament again. He's throwing a tournament in, in yeah, for the birth of his son. That's not out yet. So he's he's putting the cart a little bit before the horse. But he seems like generally a good get along guy. And then he makes the call to kill his wife in the hopes that it saves the baby. Did your opinion change about him during this? Did did you feel a different way about him after the scene? So they did set up earlier in the show briefly that it was an understanding that that Rhaenyra was a disappointment to her father because she wasn't male. So I already yeah. was kind of like, ew, rude. <laughs> um, but then they have a scene with Emma, the queen, and her daughter, Rhaenyra, and they are having just like a cute little funky heart to heart where she explains to her her role as a woman is battling through childbearing. Yeah. And that she'll be there one day. But then even though he's kind of like the party king and like nice guy, he had the scene with Amma, the queen in the bathtub. And they have this conversation where it really seems like they have a good relationship. This isn't Cersei and Robert. This isn't, you know, we're banging to make a kid and then I'm having a bunch of whores. They really seemed like they had a good relationship, which kind of redeemed him slightly for me. Because I can put into the context the types of pressure that men have in these society in all societies that maybe I don't measure against my own pressure, but I can understand that the pressure is there to perform, to be powerful, to have your power yeah. secede. So it kind of softened him a little bit for me. And then when they posed the question to him, knowing that that drive for power was going to override any love that he had for the queen. And then him ultimately choosing to go with the babe over the queen. I feel like he changed. Maybe this is a Targaryen theme where suddenly he's driven by power uh, and, the, and the perception of power. And that was a very long way to say, I think the guy is an idiot. Yeah, I think. What I found interesting about that, though, one of the terms you used, right, was this this power. But I think one of the things the show does that isn't evident in the book is to try to give a reason why he wants to be in power. So uh, when when we meet Viserys for the first time, it's Jaehaerys, his grandfather, having a council because there's questions of who the legitimate heir is. Yeah. And so here he is in a same position that nearly tore Westeros apart. And so I think... And this isn't to say he made the right decision or the moral decision or the ethical decision, but I do think the show does a good job, especially later in the episode when he reveals sort of the secret that the Targaryens have, which is that bad things are happening and a Targaryen has to be on the throne. So I think what's interesting for me is I don't see Viserys as someone in that moment making a call to retain power for himself. I see him as someone trying to retain power because he knows the family must and I think he knows about the the difficulty in having an heir. So M knows that women have like a 50-50 shot of surviving. Yeah, she spent a lot of time um, directly experiencing wi- women Targaryens who were dying from birthing children, trying to create an heir to do what she describes as a woman's duty. Yeah. So childbirth killing Targaryen women is mentioned constantly in the Fire and Blood book. And that starts with King Jahari's wife, Alysanne. She had serious health issues from her pregnancies and the king kept making her get pregnant. And she ended up having 12 pregnancies and only seven survives. Yeesh. Alyssa Valerian was queen to King Aenys, Aegon's first heir, and eventually married a Baratheon after Aenys died. She kept having kids into her 40s and ended up having a C-section to save her baby. That baby was Jocelyn Baratheon, Rhaenys, the queen who wasn't mom. In the main series, Daenerys, also a Targaryen, has a stillborn. And Emma, like multiple Targaryen women in the last three generations, they all died because men forcing them to be baby factories. When we talk about this scene, I love the way it's transposed with the violence at the tournament. We have this uh, tournament to celebrate 
the the new heir uh, who lives for a day. But we get to see one. We get to see a bunch of the houses, and I thought the scene was fucking fantastic. And I thought it was really interesting, as you mentioned, Nicole. Emma says, you know, this is this is our work. This is this is sort of our war. And so it was interesting to juxtapose the men out there fighting, you know, for glory and all this shit. And then the women, you know, back inside fighting to just give birth. When Damon Targaryen and Kristen Cole go up against each other, Nicole, who were you rooting for? I wasn't rooting for either of them. I was rooting for Emma and the baby. (laughs) If I had to pick, we've spent some time with Damon and... Regardless of his knack for violence, he has a charisma on screen. So I was probably Camp Damon to some degree, a very small degree. Do you think that his charisma comes from giving young nieces weirdly sexual gifts? No, it's just he's kind of commanding. I don't know if it's the actor or the the character, but he, he commands the scene. If you watch Matt Smith dancing in Venom 2... You will not think he's commanding. I didn't see Venom 2, but I watched him in The Crown. And even though he was awful and jealous and power rage, I didn't see Doctor Who. Um, He was very commanding in the scene. So Was he Philip? He was. Young Philip. Yeah. So I I think what's interesting about that scene and that scene, the the battle between the two of them is is actually described uh, explicitly in Fire and Blood as an important scene because it elevates uh, Kristen Cole, who is a nobody. Right. They they mentioned he's just like some dude from Dorne that elevates him and he becomes getting involved in the politics of the show as we go forward. Even Rhaenyra mentions like, who's that? Yeah. And then they're, he's they're, like, never heard of him. He's a he's a popular cat, uh, Kristen Cole. So I'm curious how they how they handle him, because as, as I mentioned, he's a very important character in, in Fire and Blood. I assume he will be a very important character here. Uh, but I, I did think they did a good job of introducing him as kind of being a badass, right? Like he took on Damon and he he won, but he still like let him yield. He's not dumb enough to kill the king's brother. Um, but I also thought that was a, a pretty cool fucking scene. Did Damon yield first? He had to, right? Yeah. So Damon yielded uh, when Damon first reached for a dagger while he was on the ground. And then uh, Kristen Cole uh, uh, swatted that away and then told him to yield. And Damon kind of gave a head nod. He didn't like yell, I yield. He was like, okay. So we're going to see that fight that Kristen Cole was in will have uh, repercussions as as we go forward. What an interesting parallel to the jousting scene in the original Game of Thrones series where the mountain and the hound go at it and how those repercussions kind of played out over the entire series. And so now I don't know if Kristen Cole is going to last the entire series, but I do know that um, there were definitely repercussions for both the hound and the mountain as time progressed. I think you're right, Nicole, when the mountain and the hound first fight in the Game of Thrones series, it's in the first season, and it's because the mountain uh, loses a joust to Loras Tyrell and goes to murder him, uh, the Lord of uh, the Knight of Flowers, and the hound jumps up to defend him, and the neatest part about that is they swing back and forth a few times, and then Robert Baratheon, the king, goes, enough, and when he yells that, the mountain continues swinging. And the hound drops to one knee and just like barely gets his head almost chopped off. And so it's it's interesting that the king still wields that power to sort of, all right, enough. What I do find interesting is in this episode that we watched of House of the Dragon, uh, Viserys doesn't tell anyone to stop bashing in skulls. In the hand of the king, Otto Hightower, who's like his bestie, he watches Otto Hightower's son get smashed up and doesn't say shit. So I think it is interesting that Vis- Viserys... Uh, doesn't say shit through this, whereas uh, Robert Baratheon in Game of Thrones, it was like, hey, keep it, keep it, you know, civil, (laughs) keep it, keep it on the field, so to speak. And Rainey makes a joke and laughs about the summer nights, the little bitch boys who've never been to war. Yeah, yeah. So all these dudes are just itching and this is how they this is how they really fight. So then after this, right, you mentioned it, the, the baby does pass away and then Damon gets a little drunk. Or at least hangs out with a bunch of drunk people. And Damon makes a comment that his nephew was heir for a day. Allegedly. Allegedly, he says this. And that does not go over well. No, an emotional man in emotional times. Here's an emotional line. Honestly, it's the truth. 
And he was using that moment to capitalize on himself. And I get that. But he's done a in the short list that they made of the things he's done wrong in this episode in the past. Many more reasons for yeah. the king to be like, <laughs> uh, you're out. I guess it was the straw that broke the camel's back for the king. So when... When Viserys has Damon come in, so like the first few times they talk is at the small council room. When he talks to him this time, Viserys is sitting on the throne holding Blackfire, the famous Targaryen sword. So like he's really showing off that like I'm the fucking king and I'm calling you to talk to me. What did you did you think that was effective? Like him like showing Damon that he's the king or do you think that that made it worse? Like he's almost showing off. Well, I think it certainly was effective um on many counts and i think the one that stood out to me most uh, which is going to de derail your point a bit is the fact that when he made the decision when he was final and was like you're out you are no longer the heir he cut himself on the throne that many people yeah. believe the throne makes decisions too that it has it has a piece of the puzzle so we yeah. experienced a few moments early in the episode where there were um, he, wounds that wouldn't heal on the king. Um, and then he was cut again upon that decision. So, yeah, I think that's that's an interesting approach. Yeah, like, does the throne know he's making bad decisions? And it's kind of like, hey, king. Right. Here you go. Take that. Was it Avon that they called the king of the scabs or something? The scab king? Oh, yeah. 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 I think he's, he's going to get pricked more. Um, and not in, like in a fun way. I fucking love that scene. To your point earlier about the violence. And again, I think when the violence is executed well, it's good. Watching a woman murdered during a C-section, not good. I, I understood the point of the scene. But I sort of check in for Game of Thrones and for House of the Dragon for these scenes. Like brother v. brother. Where he's like, I was the only one that ever like backed you. And uh, Damon's like, why can't I be Hand of the King? And he's like, you're a fucking idiot. That's why. Like, he, he defended so many of his misgivings. Yeah. So I get that. But also those things felt way heavier than making a comment like air for a day. Yeah. Which was hurtful, but it was certainly not the worst of his doings. No, that's true. Yeah, he's 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 grieving. And I think even when they uh, when the small council brings him in to talk about like a matter of urgency. And it's the matter of your your secession. He says, like, my wife and like, I just buried my wife and child. Like, are you fucking kidding me? This is where I think I think they're doing a good job of establishing it more than just a power play, which I think was so much of the Game of Thrones, where it's just people wanted the throne and they didn't know what to fucking do with it. Except they for taking Snow, it for who, granted. Like, yeah, in a way he was protecting it for his name, but he wasn't. The threat was not passing it on to a Targaryen. The threat was which Targaryen was going to represent the family well, not that this could go to a Baratheon. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So he's trying to sort of steer the ship a little bit. Right. Um, so what he does, though, is is following this meeting of kicking Daemon out. And I guess ostensibly it was kind of set up that he's sending Daemon back to the Vale uh, is is the, the vibe I got, which is where Daemon's wife is. Uh, the bronze bitch. The bronze bitch. I don't think that's where he goes. I think he ends up going back to Dragonstone, uh, but we'll find out soon. But then he names his disappointing daughter, uh, Rhaenyra, as queen. And he makes all the lords come in and pledge their obedience to him and to his heir. Right call? Right decision? I think it was always the right decision. I don't think okay. that he should have taken this time to make the decision. I think that a lot of the things he does after he decides to kill his wife are emotional grabs to try to fix what he broke. Oh, uh, okay. You think he recognizes like, oh, I fucked this up. Yep. Yeah. Is it too little too late though, you think? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we know it is. <laughs> yeah, we know shit goes down. Another interesting thing is when he names her heir, he names her Princess of Dragonstone. I think that's going to be a theme we'll continue to see is that the prince slash Princess of Dragonstone is always like the heir. And I think there's subsequent battles we'll see, at least in the books, 
there was a big deal about who you named as the Prince of Dragonstone or the Princess of Dragonstone. Now, as far as the decision, though, to name her heir and tell her what it does for their father-daughter relationship remains to be seen. So I'm interested to see. We know what the eventual um, Westeros outcome is, but we don't know what will happen with their relationship. Will losing Emma and the baby, will that become something she blames him for? Or will this decision to ultimately acknowledge her bring them closer together in the face of tragedy? I think, Nicole, that's really interesting the way you phrase it, because I think it establishes two things. He tells her the secret, which we'll talk about more in a second. But the second thing is it really sets up that she's the main heir and not Damon. So at this stage, right, we think that the two competing sort of sort of factions here are Rhaenyra and Damon. And Rhaenyra's mm-hmm. claim is that she is the eldest daughter of the king, adversaries, uh, whereas Damon's claim is that he's the the brother of of Viserys and he's the next male in line knowing yeah. that they don't like like females we we also have this third person who's who's in the episode a little bit and that's that's Rainey's uh she's the the older woman with the white hair who was married to Corlys Valerian the gentleman with dreadlocks old old hubby bubby throws her in the ring there yeah he's like don't forget about her She's the firstborn of Jaehaerys's older brother. So we saw her. We talked about her at the council where she had a claim uh, because of her lineage. So she also has this kind of tentative grasp to the throne. And we'll see sort of it's important which side she comes down on as we go forward, mm-hmm. I think. I, I don't know if her claim is stronger than the other two. But if she throws her claim in with the other two, right, it's sort of like the Jon Snow and, and Daenerys. It's like, well, you could argue who had a stronger claim. But if they got married, problem solved. So I, I think if who she backs here may be really important. But you mentioned that the king, Viserys, tells his daughter a secret about the Targaryens. Yes, I did. The new-to-lore revelation that Aegon didn't just go to Westeros to conquer fertile land. He went because he had a Targaryen dream about the Long Night, which he called the Song of Ice and Fire. This is, per Ryan Condal on the official podcast directly from George R.R. Martin. And I believe George R.R. Martin has been quote giving interviews stating that this directly relates to future releases of the book. So this is... Yeah, he's trying to tie the two series mm-hmm. together here, yeah. Did you think it was just cheesy to connect the two? Or do you think like, ooh, that's really important and I see why that gives a sort of reason for people to want power in the Targaryen household, that they believe they're destined to defeat the the, the Night King? Or did you think this was a, a cheesy connection? I don't know if it's cheesy yet. So far, um, one of the legs that kind of carries this notion, you know, because Bran was, Bran in the original Game of Thrones series could see all time. He's the one that gives Arya cat's paw. Cat's paw is the dagger that the king fondles the entire episode. <laughs> I like that he fondles so, it. <laughs> <laughs> so if they continue to sew likes like that, that don't make it cheese, if it's just a mention in this episode for fan service and we never hear about it again and there aren't in the new books, it doesn't if it doesn't turn out well, then it could be cheese. But I think if it continues to grow legs like the cat's paw leg, which I find very interesting. Um, then I don't think it's cheesy at all. Do you think it's cheesy? I I think it's a little cheese. And so on its own, I like it. I I do like elements of, I think it gives uh, Rhaenyra and her father Viserys a little bit more motivation to want the crown, to want the throne, because they sort of say, oh, this is a secret. Only we can defeat the Night King. We got to make sure our line is intact. But I already know what happens. Mm-hmm. to the Night King and to the army. And they're beaten by an assassin girl that really has nothing to do with it. So she uses the knife, yeah. What I relate this to is like when I'm watching Solo. Solo was a good movie. I enjoyed Solo. When they're like, what's your last name, kid? And he's like, I don't have one. And they're like, cool, Han Solo it is. I'm like, fuck you. Really? Fuck you. I didn't need that. I don't care how he got his name. So I on its own, it's not cheesy, but I don't need to know it. It already happened. So per The Hollywood Reporter, George R.R. R. Martin has since viewed nine of the 10 episodes in various stages, and his excitement has only grown. Quote, it's powerful. It's visceral. It's dark. It's like a Shakespearean tragedy. 
There's no Arya, a character that everyone's going to love. They're all flawed. They're all human. They do good things. They do bad things. They're driven by lust for power, jealousy, old wounds, just like human beings, just like I wrote them. End quote. Wow, well, isn't it good when you get to brag about your own writing and how you write really dynamic characters? He does a great job. Slowly. <laughs> Slowly. Uh, do you buy that? Do you like the fact that that the characters are sort of good and bad and, and we don't kind of love anyone and don't hate anyone out of the gates? I think it makes it harder to um, care, which will make it easier to lose these characters. Um, and the way that he kills people, it'll that's a fine thing. I think that it will force us to um, align with like what I would call like the Jamie arc, whereas like Jamie did terribly horrible things. He is inherently bad, but through his character arc, we were able to humanize him and empathize with him and understand what he's been through and what he was navigating and ultimately what he chose to go back to. So I just believe that we will be able to find ways to empathize with these characters as we learn mm -hmm. about them, but no one's an easy, like, you know, there's no moral center. There's no Jon Snow. There's no someone that's always trying to do what's truly right, mm -hmm. regardless of the effect on them. So that would be Jon. I don't want it. <laughs> he just, he didn't want the power. In fact, to that point, um, and I don't know if this will make the cut, but... I wonder if Rhaenyra is motivated to want, like if she ever wanted to be heir, truly, or if she'll be driven mm -hmm. to do right by her father that she's been trying to be important to yeah. her whole life. So I'll be, I'll, that'll be an interesting thing. Do you find it difficult to connect with characters that are not inherently good? I don't. But that's mostly because I'm a big fan of a redemption arc. Mm. I think redemption arcs in TV, I don't necessarily believe that in life. <laughs> um, but in 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 TV, I like a redemption arc. I, I like when they set up a villain, you know, in the first or second season of a series. And, you know, by by season seven, right? Uh, Joss Whedon, uh, the piece of shit that he is, is notorious for this in Buffy and Angel and Firefly where he'll set up a villain early on and then they have a redemption arc at some point and they become the good guy. I really enjoy that. To your point about Jamie, I think what I worry about in this series, Jamie's arc is perfect if you exclude his last scene, <laughs> which is him going to Cersei. I think it, it would have been perfect. fine if he never slept with Brienne, but whatever. I think that would have been fine too. You could have cut that off, but I think Jamie should have died defending the, the realm of men at the long mm -hmm. night. I think the trick here is I enjoyed Jamie as a villain because I could see a redemption in him. Mm. Alternately, I enjoyed, uh, say, Ramsey Snow as a villain because I hoped he got his comeuppance. Yeah. I think there's some interesting characters here in the in the pilot. We mentioned good and bad. Is there anyone that you think sort of acts as like the moral center in, in the first episode for us? Yes, absolutely. And she's dead. Emma. Yeah. Well. The queen. <laughs> For the three minutes that the actress was on screen, it was incredibly powerful and it has stayed with me all day today. So um, played by Cyan Brooke, the mother of the now heir, but she she just had touching scenes with her daughter. She had very touching scene with her husband and then an incredibly heart wrenching scene with her husband. So that would yeah. be who I view the moral center of this episode at least what about you i think emma's a good take i think her daughter would i think at this stage uh, rhaenyra i think rhaenyra shows that she's well learned she says that she understands court uh she she goes to her mom as you mentioned they have a great scene together where she says everyone's worried about the baby no one's worried about you so i think she's she's touching in that respect that she understands yeah. her mother's doing her duty but she knows that someone also needs to look out for her mom and then when Rhaenyra speaks with her her uncle, Damon, I think that she has a connection with him as well. And uh, there may be some ickiness that comes comes soon with that. But right now, there's no ickiness. It seems like she really respects. They speak old Valerian together, so they have a bond. So I think for her family, 
she feels like a disappointment to her dad, but obviously she cares about her father. She cares about her mother. Uh, she cares about her uncle. She seems to get along very well with her friend Allison. She seems well learned. She knows all the stuff from the book uh, when she gets quizzed on it. And uh, she rides a dragon, but she's not like a dick. Uh, and she hasn't burned anyone alive yet, like Daenerys did as soon as she got a dragon. Uh, she had that thing off eating fucking goats uh, with no problem. So I think for me at this stage, now uh, having read Fire and Blood, some of the decisions she makes, I don't know the reasoning behind yet. I right. just know some of the decisions that she might make. So what I find really interesting too is that right now I'm seeing her father sort of give her this great burden and say, I've had visions of how things need to go and you need to help make sure it goes that way. So I I think she provides the moral center right now for me. She's she's mm -hmm. young, she's learning, and now it seems like her father is passing that on to her. And so what I'm interested in seeing is how it affects her and how does she handle this burden of rulership. So I think that you make an excellent point. And one thing I like that they really did with Rhaenyra, that scene with she and Alicent laying in the picnic, um, they were kind of going over their studies and Rhaenyra was just being disagreeable. And mm -hmm, mm -hmm. at the end of it all, she recited it word for word, like exactly what oh, she yeah, was trying yeah. to get her to study. She knew it. But what I think that that established for that character is that she was very smart. She really did understand things. So the lesson that Rhaenyra nails is actually about Nymeria, who is a famous and powerful female ruler. And you might be familiar with this name from the Game of Thrones series as Arya's direwolf's name. David, can you talk to us about who Nymeria is? Sure. So Nymeria goes way back, uh, even before Aegon took over Westeros and came from Valeria. So Nymeria was a princess of the Rhoynar. Uh, you'll know the Rhoynar from when they drag off all their titles and they talk about ruler of the first men, queen of the Rhoynar. It's all it's all, well, one of those names they yell out to try to seem fancy. So Nymeria was a princess of Rhoynar in the Rhoynish Wars. She was defeated by the Valerian stronghold. So she wanted to get the fuck away from all the other dragons. So she hopped on some ships and she sailed out across the summer sea all the way around Valeria and she landed in Dorne. She married Mors Martell, uh, a Dornishman, and then she burned all of her fucking ships because she said, we're not going back. We're hanging out here. And so it was a, a big moment for her to declare, right, there's no way back. So Nymeria then names Mors Martell the Prince of Dorne because, like, Dorne is just a bunch of, like, warring petty kings. And so she's like, hey, we got a ton of soldiers. Let's make Dorne a thing. It's hot and it's sweaty. And it's going to be the Seventh Kingdom here. And so then she took over Dorne, and it's referred to as Nymeria's War. And it goes on and on and on. And Sheehan and Mors Martell eventually beat all of these other petty kings. And she ends up sending a bunch of them to the wall. And then she makes Dorne like a principality. And so she put the House Dorne, uh, House Martell in charge of Dorne. And then she rules as the Princess of Dorne for like 30 years. And so Dorne allows women to rule. And we saw this in Game of Thrones where Dorne was trying to make a plot in the books to make one of Cersei's daughters uh, the queen. And it just didn't really work out for them because uh, George didn't finish writing the books. And then the TV show kind of forgot about the Dorne plot line. But I think the important thing here is, is one, Nymeria was a badass. Um, and while being a badass, it also shows that Rhaenyra knows her history. And... They start to build a friendship um, between the two girls or an understanding of a friendship between these two young girls. And that is not something that was covered in the history of the of Fire and Blood. No, they they knew each other. Right. But Allison and who she's Otto Hightower's daughter, Otto Hightower, the hand of the king. Allison is is sort of aged down in the show. It makes them sort of this best friends, this this thing. So it's. She drops, I think, like 10, year, 10, 11 years in age. I think that sets up their eventual rivalry that that sort of develops uh, without giving giving away spoilers from the books. There's there's a, a rivalry that develops between the two of them. And in the books, Allison gets painted with, with a much nastier brush. So her friendship with, with Rhaenyra isn't talked about. But 
She helped King Jaehaerys in his last days as he passed away and was sick. And it's heavily implied that she took care of him in other ways on his deathbed, if you get my mm-hmm. justification. So it'll be interesting to see. We saw a little bit of Otto Hightower starting that in this this episode where he says, go comfort the king. And the way he said it was like, go do whatever the king wants. Like, go help out the king. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. He even said, like, you know, wear, wear one of your mom's dresses, like, which is fucking gross. And his wife recently died, too. So I think it's it's one of those, like, she's a pawn right now to Otto Hightower, Allison, that is. And he's trying to use her, and he sends her to the king, and she's like, my dad sent me and my pussy, but I showed up with a book. It's like, oh, thank God. Right? Like, it's awful. But I think they, they're maybe trying to go the same route they went with her in the books, which is they, they really portray her in the books as, like, a sexual tool initially used by her father, and then ultimately she uses that uh, for her power. I see them changing her. And I think she's more compelling this way. I think she's she's certainly more interesting. And she was so timid when her dad asked her. So I don't know if yeah. her helping the former king, Jaharis, is canon for the show because of how she be- she behaved as if it was like completely. Oh yeah, out of line. yeah, yeah. So I I don't. That's a good point. I don't think they'll they'll sort of have this old story with her and Jaharis then. Uh, and again, I, I mentioned in the books, there's mushroom, uh, mushroom is the jester who tells right. a lot of stories. So it, the book purposely can get away with being vague or being misleading. And sometimes the book even calls out like, well, mushroom said X, but we know <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Uh, but I think their friendship is really cool. But these girls seem to be the center yeah. of the story right now. They seem to be, uh, where the writers are pushing us to lay our hearts and now both have lost their moms they both have different ambitions and it's a very aria sansa conflict that we're setting up here in fact at one point while watching this show i was thinking about how the original star wars in relation to the newest mm-hmm. trilogy and how they followed all the same plot yeah. points i was like i wonder if they're the same beats doing a do-over yeah i <laughs> So weirdly, I think there would be some element of that I like. I think there there is some element of like, and Nicole, you and I have done this. So while we talk about this, like, who's the new Jon Snow? Who's the new this guy? Mm-hmm. Who's, who's the new Arya? I don't think it works exactly. No. Um, but it does help you have a, a a gentle touchstone or when you talk to people about this, it's like. And when Millie Alcock was um, auditioning, she actually auditioned using Arya lines. Oh, really? Mm hmm. Oh, that's cool. So are outside of Emma, are 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 the the girls your favorite characters? Are are Rhaenyra and Allison your favorite characters? Who who kind of stood out for you the most as your favorite outside of Emma? I think the person who I mentioned earlier, Damon, had the most charisma, the most command when on screen. And again, yeah. I attribute that a lot to Matt, the actor. Um so the internet has gone wild for Sir Kristen Cole. Are you on the Kristen Cole ship or who's calling to you from the cast so far? So Kristen Cole had an awesome scene. <laughs> I I like seeing seeing a mace. He's using a mace. How cool is that? Stupid, actually. He swings it and then he's wide open for the hit. Stupid. Hey, he makes it work. He wins against Damon. He he makes it work. I think I was interested in in Kristen Cole, certainly because of the fighting aspect. And I think knowing where his character goes in the books. I think it's an an interesting start. So I am I am hooked on that that line. I think the most interesting character in the pilot that grabbed me was Viserys. And the reason for mm. that, I think, wow. I see a flawed man making bad decisions, mm-hmm. and it, it directly connected me to to Ned. Uh oh. and I, I I I think there's I'm probably overstretching the analogy, but Viserys seems like a good dude. And he Seems like a good king, not a great king. Seems like a good mm-hmm. king. Mm-hmm. Seems like a a generally good dad. His wife loves him, so he must be a good husband. But I don't think maybe he's the right person to be king. He can't play the yeah. Game of Thrones. A lot like Ned. Uh, I, I think he's going to make bad calls throughout. I also think Ned that murdered a man in the first episode, too. He did. He, murdered a person. he chopped off the head. Yeah. And but again, what what Ned does is always for the Starks. I, I think so far with Viserys is he what he's doing for the Targaryens, and that 
may mean he has to whack his his Aaron wife. I do think that Patty Considine's acting throughout this, his ability to show like he has like a shit face, like where he's just like shit. And it looks like like he's just got this look about him, like when they're talking shit on his brother, when they're talking about secession, when he's talking to his brother later on. I feel like he's in so many situations where he's like, shit, really? Like, come on, I'm the king. And I kind of, I feel that frustration through his acting. And I think he's doing a wonderful job of showing Mm -hmm. the inner conflict that he's having. So when he makes that choice with Emma and he's holding her hand, I'm like, oh no, he's, he's making the bad call. And it looks like he knows he's making the bad call, but he still does it. And then later on, he tries to make the right call with his daughter uh, Rhaenyra, and then when he explains it to her, he's explaining like, well, there's this great burden. And he looks like, like he physically looks like he feels the burden. Mm-hmm. So I think I find the character really interesting. And I give a lot of that to, I think with a lesser actor, I think I'd be like, oh, this guy's a fucking idiot. Mm-hmm. But because Patty Considine sort of wears it on his face, like his worry, I relate to that very, I relate to the worry. He had a lot to go up against with, uh, like I mentioned a million times, Damon's charismatic performance or Matt's yeah, charismatic yes. performance to come up against him and kind of turn him into a, a, a puppy with its tail between its legs. And the scene where he's on the throne was an incredible switch. And I, I have to agree that performance was incredible. So after episode one, and this will change throughout if, if this follows the books, but right now, our major decision was Rhaenyra or Damon. Those are the two most likely competitors for the throne. At the end of this episode, it's made very clear by Viserys that Rhaenyra is his heir. Are you team Rhaenyra right now? Or are you team Damon right now to rule the Iron Throne? Oh, Rhaenyra, for sure. Yeah. I think at this stage, I am 100% Rhaenyra, absolutely. If I'm invested in any sort of like character relationship or arc it's definitely to see what's going to happen between this father daughter duo in the face of everything that they've just experienced so your first episode back did you come away cautiously optimistic were you a hundred percent on the hype train were you disappointed where did you walk away from the episode last night last night um i was not as rabid as i was after a game of thrones episode Okay. Whereas I would spend the next two to three hours just <laughs> on Twitter watching reaction, live reactions, talking to anyone who will, was awake about the episode and what we think is <laughs> going to happen. And I don't think we got that for this episode, but I'm very interested in what happens next. I don't feel sick about like, like joyfully sick about it like I did Game of Thrones. <laughs> but I mean, what about you? I think I'm joy- I like joyfully sick. I think I like that. Yeah, I was <laughs> I was hype train. Uh, and I think I'm surprised by how hyped I was because I mentioned recently we watched rewatching the entire HBO uh, Game of Thrones series. Mm-hmm. And I, I was very clear headed in what I liked and didn't like about the final season. Uh, so it's weird because my hype is just coming down from rewatching that. Right. You hit mm-hmm. things like Battle of the Bastards and. And hard home and stuff. And I'm hype again. I'm like, this is the greatest TV show ever made. And then you sort of come back down a little bit on season eight. Wasn't so bad. I wasn't. Eh, we've had a whole podcast where we disagree on this. Um, but I think I, I was sort of coming back down again from that high just as I was coming here Sunday to, to watch this episode. And I went full hype again. Um, I know we're going to get an intro sequence for the second episode that's been announced. There was no intro sequence for the first episode. It was just the Targaryen medallion. Uh, but we will get a sequence for that. But once the the HBO sort of static went away, oh. I was edge of my seat the entire time. And to your point, once it ended, right on Reddit, right on the internet, <laughs> reading thoughts, reading concepts. Yeah. Uh, I think if anything, for me, I may be more hyped now because when I first watched Game of Thrones, I hadn't read any of the books. I hadn't been aware right. of it. Yeah, it wasn't until season three that I was like Invested. reading the books mm-hmm. and getting sucked in. But now yeah. I've got several hundreds, thousands of pages of this under my belt, um, <laughs> hundreds of hours of TV, hundreds of hours of Wikipedia. And didn't you yeah, read so I, most of the series on a throne? 
I did. Most of my reading uh, was in the bathroom. I had some tummy problems one summer <laughs> and I read through the entire catalog. Thankfully, uh, I've been reading Duncan Egg, uh, <laughs> not on the porcelain throne. So. Uh, Duncan Egg has, has been read regular. Uh, yeah, so I think I went in more hype. So something that was really interesting, we didn't get a title sequence, we will, like you mentioned, but the first thing that my husband said to me when the HBO static started was, do you think it's the same song? And then when the episode oh. closed, it was. It was. I don't know if it will continue, but it was. Um, so it's the same composer that's doing all the music. Yeah, Raman, Raman Jawadi. That's right. And so there's nothing more fulfilling than that rush from hearing the music. Yeah, and I, I think he he did a great job doing the motifs. So there was elements from the old soundtrack uh, throughout with new stuff. What do you think the new sequence will be? Not just musically. Do you think the opening sequence will be similar to the old one where we kind of jump around a, a sort of miniature set? Do you think it'll be the tabletop? Do you think it's a map? Do you think it's character portraits? Do you think they're going to switch it up? What I noticed from... The title sequence for Game of Thrones is that as we covered or discovered a different section of Westeros, it was added yep. to the sequence. So do yeah. I think that they'll follow the same kind of map mode building of all, each of these kingdoms, these areas? I don't think so, but I don't okay. know what they would replace it with because it's pretty damn epic. Yeah, I... I would imagine whatever they do is going to be a slight disappointment no. because the the old one was so fucking badass. Could you imagine being that guy? Like, all right, come oh. up with the new sequence. Yeah. Make it as good as the old one, but different. It, it will be the same company, though. I think Elastic did the original and they did a great job. Uh, yeah. And I think to your point about jumping around the map, at least in the book, most of the stuff is, I mean, we're talking King's Landing. We're talking Dragonstone. Uh, drift mark is is another important one. We'll eventually get to the stepstones. Uh, so there's not a whole variety, a whole lot of variety in where they go. In the books, at some point, folks go on progressions where they sort of go around and and see Westeros. But I don't know that that's that interesting. Yeah. Like it'll be interesting to see how they do the jump. Yeah, the jump, and then the yeah, for sure, they handle travel interestingly in the Game of Thrones series. It seems. Yeah like they're learning from their mistakes so yeah that's good i i have a theory that george rr R. martin couldn't decide where he wanted to go with this series so he just threw one of his many ideas out there for the show to see what people thought before he <laughs> penned it that's one of my theories <laughs> he's like let's see how this one hits oh not that one <laughs> gotta rewrite it it's gonna take me another 10 years <laughs> so as we close this up what was your favorite thing about the first episode of the new show? For me, honestly, I, I think the part that I enjoyed the most, uh, the, the action stuff was everything cool. The thing I liked the most that like, I think had the biggest smile on my face was when Rhaenyra was sort of being set as the heir and they had each of the houses pledging to her. And they were sort of intercutting it with with Viserys telling her the the Targaryen secret. Mm -hmm. Seeing some of those houses again, seeing a Baratheon pledge, seeing a Stark pledge, just as they were talking about the Long Night. I think what the first part of the episode set up is that the Targaryens are important, the High Towers are important, the Valerians are important, and those are houses we're going to get to know very well, like the Starks, like the Lannisters. But I really like the larger world. So when they're doing the jousting and I'm seeing the flags be put in and then later on when they did those knee elements. So I think everyone bowing to Rhaenyra and being able to see, oh, yeah, we're not just it's not just the Targaryens. They're who we're following. But there's a larger world for me that sort of scratched the like, hey, remember Winterfell? Here's here's the Starks yeah. bowing the knee. So I think that was my favorite moment to come out because it's what connected Oh, Rhaenyra is in charge of these families, and I know these families. Uh, so that was that was for me my favorite individual part was that connection piece. How about you? My favorite part about the episode, and I imagine will be the series, is definitely the costumes. The costumes are incredible. 
they're rich. It's even even if you remember we mentioned Otto Hightower asks his daughter Alicent to wear one of her mother's dresses. Yeah, yeah. And it is completely a 180 from what she wears in the earlier scenes in the show just really changes the character changes the tone how powerful different elements in the costume like weapons and it's part of the show it's a character in and of itself the the costume so i would definitely say that was my favorite part no i i think you're right it, it look whatever it cost it looked like it was worth it so as we start to wrap up, Nicole, we had uh, a lot of fun watching the first episode of, of the new series, The Hairs of the Dragon, as the first episode. We weren't alone. We were not alone. No, Variety posted that this first episode drew in nearly 10 million viewers across HBO and HBO Max, making it the biggest HBO series premiere ever. Ever. So House of the Dragon off to a big start. Nicole, we're going to be back next week for episode two. What are you hoping for? More dragons? More baby murder? What do you, what's your what's your key your key want next oh, week? I hope baby murder's on the menu. <laughs> I'm hoping to dive deeper into characters and uh, relationships so that I can start to feel um, more connection. So that's what I'm uh, that's what I'm thirsting for. What about you? Yeah, I, I think I think you're right. A little little Viserys, a little uh, Rhaenyra. I want to see him grooming her now for the throne, and what that what that involves, folks. Thank you for talking episode one with us. Uh, the episode was called The Heirs of the Dragon, and this was our first dive into House of the Dragon. We will be back for episode two next week, and we will continue that throughout the season. Check out our Twitter feed at It's Not TV Pod for further details about our podcast and to connect to our community. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. A very special thank you to our producer, Matt Malone. It's Not TV is a production of Bruit Media. All Aaron's must die. Emma <laughs> was an Aaron of the Vale. Yeah. And then in the Game of Thrones first episode, we find out that John Aaron, the Hand of the King, has died. Yeah. So when an Aaron dies, the HBO show begins. <laughs> <laughs>